Welcome to another episode of the SCU Buzz podcast. I begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we speak today and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Today is an exciting one. We are joined with Dr. Kate Neal. She is a Southern Cross researcher with a PhD in childhood studies. She currently works with the Centre for Children and Young People for the Faculty of Health, and her recent work has delved into discovering the role of therapeutic horticulture and how that fosters a sense of belonging and inclusion for people at a social or community level. She's also the Vice President of the Therapeutic Horticulture Australia team and a full member of the Australian Institute of Horticulture. What don't you do? Kate, good morning. How are you? I'm very well. What I don't do well is homeschooling, that's for sure. So oh. everything else, but uh, as we're sitting in lockdown, homeschooling. Yes, well, I said that my um, neighbours have annoying children and then you said that you have chickens that interrupt you. I thought that was like a metaphor for lots of children, but you genuinely have chickens. I do. I've renamed them. They were given names by my children, but when they come into my office, they're Susan from HR and Deborah from finance. Um, and they come in and we just have little chats, but they they have been, you know, we, we're going to have to write a written warning because they're starting to join me on Zoom a lot. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's becoming a bit disruptive. Yeah, Susan from HR loves a chat. Sometimes you get her going and she won't leave you three hours later. That's so true. Oh, well, hello, Susan, whenever you decide to join us on the Zoom call today. So we've got a lot to tackle here, but firstly, just tell us a bit about your background and research. Yeah, well, um, uh, as you mentioned, my PhD is in was in childhood studies. Um, I explored children's understanding and experiences with ethical consumption, and it was fascinating on lots of levels, um, understanding how children are included but often excluded from some really important conversations, how parents uh, would caution me on the topics that they wanted um, children to talk about. And then when I got into the interview with the kids, finding out they knew it all already. They were the ones that were bringing up um, some really tricky ethical decisions around consumption. Um, And so what that PhD really taught me was not so much the importance of the topics we talk to kids about, but how we include them and how we include their voices and their rights to have these conversations. Uh, And that's really um, the the deep philosophy that is at the Centre for Children and Young People. We focus greatly on um, ethical research involving children. So it was a really fascinating and fabulous um, basis for the work that I do moving forward. I then worked um, on a disability ARC project which looked at the relationships between people with uh, cognitive disability and their carers. Again, never worked in the disability space before, but I was really struck by the desire for people with intellectual disability to be heard um, and to be authentically involved in things that matter in their lives. Um, and, And at all the time that I was doing that, I was in my backyard, in my garden, loving gardening and noticing that especially when I was kind of tapping away at my 
um, my computer for hours on end by the end of my PhD, how much it was so good for me just to get out in the garden and think about nothing or focus attently on how cucumbers grow or, um, you know, take such joy in the fact I was growing strawberries. So I got to this point in my career post-PhD and post-ARC project um, where I thought, I'm just going to meld everything I love into a research career. I love working with kids. I love um, hearing their voices on things that really matter to them. The same with people with intellectual disability and their carers, what they can tell us. Um, and I realised through this thing called therapeutic horticulture that people can really have a say in their life or demonstrate their capacity and their enthusiasm for giving through gardening. And so, yeah, that's the research career that I feel so incredibly blessed that I've been able to, um, to kind of carve out for myself in the last, I don't know, four or five years now, I suppose. Yeah, it's great that you had the ability to be able to merge your outside passion into one big thing. I mean, not many people can pull that off. Like I got into candle making last year, but it is a completely different field out there. So that's awesome to see. And you mentioned therapeutic horticulture. Tell us about what that actually means. Yeah, so, well, we've just done a national study. So we have a research subcommittee as a part of Therapeutic Horticulture Australia, which is currently made up of about six academics from different universities around Australia. Incredibly proud of the way we collaborate together. But essentially we've asked everyone working in therapeutic horticulture how they define it. So I have my own definition, um, but now we have a collective voice in Australia for what therapeutic horticulture is. Um, and they define it, all the people that took part in our survey, is gardens and gardening um, and landscapes that um, provide well-being, mental and physical, spiritual, uh, emotional well-being that foster togetherness that allow us to come together and um, socially interact with our community or other people who perhaps are like us or people we don't normally get to talk to um, and really very importantly an opportunity to benefit from a connection with nature because we know that humans are innately connected to nature that we feel better when we're in nature that we often seek out natural landscapes for our well-being and to feel at peace with ourselves and so that is the field of therapeutic horticulture essentially that's an awesome thing so what makes a therapeutic landscape like what does that look like oh this is my favorite question because <laughs> i have come to the decision that any natural greenscape and bluescape and brownscape but in my field we talk about greenscapes is therapeutic so we don't need to design these particularly special therapeutic gardens and mm. think that we can only get the benefits of being in nature when we're in those spaces. But it's really about being in any green space or participating in any gardening activity that provides an opportunity for us to, um, to feel better about ourselves, to feel more connected, to feel more grounded. We do it through a number of different ways. So it might be about the, um, the textures around us, the ability to get our hands in the soil, access to natural surroundings, the different ways that uh, landscapes are designed to send us on a journey and the different ways we'll connect to nature through that. But essentially, I, I truly believe that if you can be... Um, 
with around touching a plant um, in a garden anywhere, it has therapeutic benefits. Yeah, well, that's great to like debunk that because, you know, when I was researching your background, I was thinking that it would have to be an elaborate thing, but um, this is probably the wrong time to tell you that the only plant on my desk is a fake Kmart plant. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, it's not the area that I work in, but um, (laughs) there is also a whole bunch of research around that the the vision, the, um, the views of nature give us therapeutic benefits. So in the absence of nature, things like wallpapers that have um, kind of natural trees or forests or plants or even your dear fake Kmart plant, can you can derive benefit from. Not my Woo-hoo. area of interest, but it is founded. So you're there. Don't worry about it. Yes. And with all my beach Zoom backgrounds, combine the both of them and I'm away. <laughs> Um, But you said it benefits a lot of people. Do you have any specific case studies of, you know, a child that you've seen develop from using nature as a tool or is it broader than that? Hard to narrow down. Oh, no. I mean, again, this is this kind of magical difficulty in the space is that Mm. in that survey that we did, we asked people who do you work with and who derives benefit from the work that you do. And it was the broad spectrum. We were talking about children. We were talking about people living with dementia. We're talking about people with disability. Um, we were talking about people over the age of 18. The general public might have access through green spaces where near and where they live, um, returned service veterans. Um, there really does not seem to be a group of people, a cohort or a person who could be excluded from the benefits. Personally, I work in the space with around children and people with disability. Um, Mm. I'm also moving into the space where I'm looking at youth at risk or with lived experience of trauma. Um, And on that kind of case study basis, there's just some incredible benefits that I've seen through the research. In 2019, I did an amazing project with um, Michael Casey. He's the president of the Australian Institute of Horticulture. He runs a school horticulture program at a um, secondary college in Melbourne. Essentially, the kids that were always told to do horticulture were the kids who, for some reason, didn't enjoy being in the classroom or had been deemed to kind of, you know, be disruptive or that they weren't really interested in school. So it was like, well, maybe you'll, you know, go on and do something in horticulture. It was a bit of a place to put the kids that weren't excelling in school. Um, And Michael saw that as a really incredible opportunity to obviously teach kids about horticulture. But what he saw was their enthusiasm um, for contributing, um, an ability for them to actually um, bring the skills of growing. So a lot of them, this is a, a school where mostly a non-English background, um, had, they have mostly non-English backgrounds. There were lots mm. of kids who were refugees or kids of refugees. Um, and growing was actually a really important part of their childhood. So it was an opportunity for them to come into school and say, I know a lot about this and actually demonstrate those skills. Some kids had incredibly busy or difficult or complex backgrounds at home. So coming into the garden was an opportunity. And I've got one beautiful saying, a quote from a student who said, 
I love coming to this class because it's just an escape, not an escape Mm. from anything bad, but just a place to be quiet and on my own. That's a paraphrase, not an exact quote, but something of that, that, um, uh, in that manner. And it really just might, the way that Michael ran that class was that kids could find what they were good at in that subject and do that. Now, this is like, you remember I, when I went to high school, the ag plot was at the back of the, um, the high school and no one ever went there and it kind of smelled like, cows or something Michael at this school has brought the horticultural class it's one acre of growing right to the center of the school campus so every student walks around or through that garden in their day and what they found in that was that all the schools were school students were benefiting from or contributing to or taking from in terms of produce a benefit from that garden. Um, And it really changed the way that the school viewed horticulture and it especially changed the way it viewed those kids in that class because they were the custodians and stewards of the jewel in that school. They were providing produce to um, uh, the local parish. They were supplying organic food to the kids who were studying hospitality and chefing. the students started working with them so it developed into a social enterprise that is really changing the way we see horticulture in education but importantly it changed the trajectory of some of those kids moving through that school and I think that's the power of therapeutic horticulture when I see it in that setting absolutely and you mentioned um, the location of them and I feel like that's kind of similar for the community gardens in certain suburbs, towns, sometimes they are just randomly placed wherever and barely advertised. Like I remember it wasn't until I moved regionally that I realised, oh, hang on, this is cool. Like why aren't we getting around this more? We should have cute little garden dates if you don't have the facility to do it in your own home. And I feel like, I mean, they're getting more and more common, but we should probably... I don't know, spread the word a bit more, do you think? Oh, there's such great work. And when you think about all the, we call it pedestrian growing, so where you see like roundabouts or footpath, like near footpaths or, you know, all the different places where we tend to put really low maintenance, drought tolerant plants. And there's great examples of guerrilla gardening where the locals, the people who live in that community have actually dug that up and started growing things with purpose. Not only does that provide access to fruit and vegetables and to herbs for the local community, but it actually gives a reason for neighbours to come out and be together in their front Mm. street or in the verge or wherever they're actually doing it. Um, And and so it's a it's kind of that thing of grow food not lawns it's an extension or a different kind of angle to that um, but it really is more than just growing food it's an opportunity to come together socially and again that's an area of um, research that I'm particularly interested in and how that happens and and what's kind of the magic source that means that so many people can benefit on different levels yeah and obviously with lockdown a lot of people have been getting into the garden. My whole Instagram feed is just garden picks, garden picks, garden picks. Have you noticed from your end like a spike in people showing interest in horticulture and therapeutic horticulture? Has it been nuts? Oh, it was massive. And, and 
you know, especially in 2020 when it all started and the whole of Australia and much of the world was in lockdown, we noticed that there was a, an uptake in media coverage of either gardening, um, getting back into your backyard, because it was for those that have the privilege of a backyard, it was yeah. one of the places that we could actually go. Um, people were starting to, like, take up hobbies or online courses around gardening. It, it provided something to do during the day. Gardening has this really wonderful thing where it makes you believe in tomorrow. It's trite as that sounds you plant a seed and you tend to it because you believe in growth tomorrow and that's a beautiful way for people to see um, some extraordinarily hard times during a pandemic to actually think about it in terms of what can I do today that will contribute to a better tomorrow and gardening was a beautiful metaphor for that in many ways um, mm. so that was a really important thing what I'm noticing this time around I mean I think we all got locked down and we were happy to be locked down because it was so uncertain in 2020. In mm. 2021, um, I braced for a lot of my projects stopping because I was like, oh, well, we're locked down, it can't go ahead. Um, and, and that's true for some of the work that I do, but mostly because we saw the benefits that came from gardening in such extraordinary times, it became more important that the projects continued. So I'm working with a group down in Ballina at the moment um, they work with children with lived experience of trauma or at risk of um, significant trauma. And essentially the worst thing they could be doing right now is having those kids at home um, or on their own. And the social mm. isolation can take the toll, especially depending on the children's um, mental health state at the time. So we're pushing ahead with some of the projects. Now is the time to be out in the garden. We need to be more socially connected than ever before. And thankfully being outdoors is is one of the safest places we can be um, yeah. to get together, but in a safe way that, um, you know, is lowering COVID risk than meeting indoors. So the, the lockdown, I think, was a time for therapeutic horticulture and horticulture more broadly really to shine. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's so hard to see a future like in certain aspects and to be excited about something and you know lockdown showed just that like we can actually get excited about the little things but I want to confess something I'm not very savvy in the garden in fact I'm pretty hopeless with most things so this is a bit overwhelming for me but you've definitely inspired me already so I want some tips how can I get rid of the Kmart plant and turn it into something real? Ah, well, you will um, start with something easy. I mean, I come from no horticultural background whatsoever, but I actually think that that made it easier to be in the garden with people because I knew what it was like to have no experience but a bit of enthusiasm to grow. Um, so what I did was I just started small. I didn't set up my entire garden bed, which I have now, a beautiful garden, um, but I just had one garden bed. It was like 1.2 metres by 1.2 metres in the middle of my backyard and I just grew a couple of things and so many things died, but it just doesn't matter. It's like you just pull it out and pretend it never happened and plant something else there and there's some plants like that are easier to grow than others I wish I knew how to grow, grow a big tomato I'm excellent at cherry tomatoes but big tomatoes are actually like this myth they're quite hard so you stick with like the, the quick wins the herbs the lettuce um, and you just grow from there like literally lol grow from there <laughs> I know I'm trying to hold back from all the puns that have occurred oh, in this conversation. There's puns everywhere metaphors and puns is the name of the game in this field don't you worry about it 
Yeah. Well, okay. So you said lettuce, herbs, and what's that? Cherry other? tomatoes, but start small. Get Is that really small? good compost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So get a, okay. um, wait, do you have a backyard or are we on a balcony? Uh, I do. It's not very big though. You don't need big. Okay. You just need to get a growing container. So it's easier to grow in a container depending on what you're growing, but then in the ground because you can buy a really nice organic um, compost and soil so that you've mm. got the best quality nutrients to feed those little plants. Um, if you're going to grow, we say roots or fruits, then you need lots of sunshine. But if you want to do like leafy greens and herbs, then we can do it with a little bit of shade. Why don't we just swap? You can teach me how to make candles and I'll help <laughs> you set up a garden bed at some stage. That sounds like it, we could collab, like come grow a candle and a plant for just $89. <laughs> Act now. Yeah. Get your Zoom session registered. <laughs> Candles and plants not included. Free chicken tutorials. Yeah, exactly. So um, the secret to a house plant, what's, is that just sunshine? And what is it such thing as too much watering? Where's the fine line? Or you just hope for the best? I, I often think that houseplants are the work of the devil. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm um, <laughs> completely unable to keep a houseplant alive really? mostly unless uh, succulents I'm okay with because mm. they don't mind if you get watering them, but also, you know, if they're getting enough sunshine. Um, yeah, look, I, I can't even lie and pretend I've got many tips on that. Well, that's um, really comforting. That. I'm all about the outdoors. So if you yeah. want, I, I said, let's garden outdoors. But no, houseplants, I just think are, you know, they're not the people at the party I want to have a drink with. I just <laughs> avoid them. <laughs> well, that makes me feel a lot better about myself because if you're <laughs> saying it, then it's not just me. It feels good. So I noticed <laughs> that you were heavily involved on Instagram for a while there with a lot of green pickies and you managed to rack up 29,000 followers or something ridiculous like that. How did you feel the social media community helped with you? Well, one, information, like we were just sharing, mm -hmm. um, you can, I mean, it's an incredible community of growers from all around the world. So I found it fascinating seeing what was happening on the other side of the world and how things grew in like you know, extraordinary conditions, either in Abu Dhabi, where it was 50 degrees, or uh, in Canada, where it was like minus 20 degrees, people were still growing. I found that incredibly fascinating. Um, I think it was the fact that you could do a shout out and say, oh my God, what has happened to my kale? And people were just happy to give advice. So it's a great place to learn gardening. Yeah. Um, I think it was a really like literally, here comes another pun, but organic for me. I just started that account because none of my friends cared that I was growing beautiful strawberries. And I thought, Aww. well, I'll just, I'll just set up an account and take photos and see what happens. And it really did kind of steamroll really quickly. And I think that it was because it was just me often in my pajamas because I had a toddler just kind of gardening and enjoying seeing how things grew for the first time I'd never seen a cucumber grow I'd never seen you know all the different types of lettuce I had no idea you know it's hard to well it was hard to buy purple carrots so the opportunity to grow them was fabulous um and I think from that people just got to know me as a person and what I realized then in terms of connections were that people who were wanting to do research in the space around children 
and gardening uh, saw my work because I'd often talk about, you know, the other projects that I was doing on the, on the side when, when these mm. lives were separate. Um, and I think it just gave them a good indication of the type of person I was and they built a rapport. I mean, I've got, I work, I have now a more worky uh, research-based Instagram account, which is Digability. And I, I always just put my work and my thoughts around, you know, therapeutic horticulture and the benefits. And it's really just a bit of a stream of thoughts. Um, and I've had people contact me and say, I've been, you know, following your work for 18 months and didn't have an opportunity, but we've just got a grant and we'd love to work with you. And I think that never would have happened unless I was just putting myself out there and, and yeah. giving an opportunity for people to get to know me before they even decided whether they wanted to work with me. So it's been, yeah, it's kind of crazy, but it, it was great. I loved it. Have you ever come across the Instagram boys with plants? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have. Say no There's more. Some, there is some killer <laughs> Instagram. And I, it's so funny. I once had a detailed look through my followers, you know, like just scrolling to mm. see who was following me. And I had an extraordinary number of doomsday preppers in America because oh. they're really into things like seed saving and growing under adverse conditions. Oh. Um, I also, yeah, and I also had people who were really interested in gumboots to an unhealthy level. Yeah, it was quite interesting, the people <laughs> that are out there on Instagram. But God love it. I think it's a, a great way to connect. Yeah, unhealthy level of gumboots. That's great. I guess with the field, <laughs> though, it is very diverse. You know, you'd find a lot of different people, which is probably why it's so great to connect and have this as a way of communicating uh, socially and the mental health benefits because of the diverse range of people and the things that you can learn. I guess my question is, what advice would you give to someone that is interested in pursuing it further than just a little plant in the garden? Um, Okay, so if you're interested in pursuing therapeutic horticulture, I would say that you're a person who is currently working in the horticultural space and can see the benefits that are derived from it when people come through the garden or the landscape. Um, And so uh, tha.org.au is the Therapeutic Horticulture Australia website. There's some really great information up there around how to, uh, I guess, look at horticultural but from a person-focused position. so thinking about it more than just what you do with people, but how, what is a person-centred, rights-based, ethical way of working with people in the garden? And I think that's fundamental to good therapeutic horticulture. Um, if you're already working with people, so we've got lots of counsellors, occupational therapists, nurses, psychologists, uh, teachers, lots of people already working in a person-focused um profession who maybe are an avid gardener so they've started bringing that into the classroom or they've seen the benefits of having counseling sessions outside as opposed to inside then you know you can keep doing that just keep incorporating the garden what I find has been a huge benefit is getting to know horticulturalists Um, so that's why I'm a member of the Australian uh, Institute of Horticulture because I I think I'm great on the people-focused side of things, but understanding, you know, what is the best choice of plants in this landscape? What plants give uh, the best sort of tactile experience for a person perhaps with low vision? What are the best, safest plants that we could be working with? How how do you design a landscape that moves a person through that space in a... um, 
in a really free-flowing way where they're getting the maximum out of that. Um, and so my collaborations with horticulturists, such as, you know, Michael Casey, when we worked on that schools project together, really has enriched my understanding of the potential and the future of horticulture, I think, um, in terms of our sustainability, not just environmentally and economically, but from a social sustainability perspective, how does it bring us together? Yeah, wow. You mentioned some really interesting points there with the texture and things that I wouldn't even think of that clearly you've so extensively researched. And on that note, what has been your highlight of your academic career at Southern Cross University? Is that too hard to pinpoint just one? Do you know, I mean, I think everyone at SCU says this, but it's the people. I think Mm. we're really blessed that We have colleagues, once upon a time in the corridors, not so much anymore, thanks to COVID, but we have colleagues who deeply care about the work that they do and they deeply care about the partnerships um, and the collegiality that is research. And, And I often thought that I would be best as a researcher working independently because I, you know, I just like having everything and just being able to work on my own and 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 I've realized through the work that I've done with colleagues at SCU and beyond the importance of collaboration and of collegiality and SCU does that best and I've got three people in mind that have really shaped changed the trajectory not just shaped me but thrown me onto a completely different course um, in my research career the first was Jeremy Bulchins who taught me that research has to matter and it has to matter to the person that you're doing the research with. So, you know, do research that matters for a person with disability or um, at that time I was working in homelessness research. Um, Anne Graham, who is the centre director for the Centre for Children and Young People, she brings such an unwavering and unapologetic integrity to the work that she does um, and really has set the standard that research must be rigorous of course but ethical and we and and in that ethics is really hearing the voices of children and for me people with disability as well and through the center I got the opportunity to work with a young woman called Jamesie Speeding she was a young woman with intellectual disability who I worked three years on um, that ARC project with Jamesie needed help walking so I would often I would literally walk arm in arm with Jamesie on our work days and she fundamentally changed um what I understood about what living with a disability was because we were often looking for ramps and, and, you know, avoiding escalators and looking for lifts and through, you know, physically uh, navigating terrain with Jamesy, I realised that disability is about social uh, inability, uh, inaccess and exclusion. Mm -hmm. It's not about the person with disability. So I think those three people for those three reasons have really fundamentally changed the way I want to do research or kind of put me on the path of how I do my research and they were all at SCU and I'm so thankful for that. Sounds like you've learned so much being here and so much so many different aspects do you have like a future partnership that you have your eye on that you're hoping to get underway? Yeah, I've got, I've got proposals on a few desks of people I'm dying to work with, um, but I've got a project I really want to do. Um, I would love to map, so I'd love to create a book that yeah. is um, it highlights the important work that people with disability do through horticulture. We are at a real um, point, I think, in the field where we think about 
therapeutic horticulture for people with disability and how it helps them that they're participants of care like they receive recipients sorry of care um and that we think that oh it's good they're involved because you know it's really good for them in, in a kind of you know bordering on patronizing way and yet mm. every time I'm out in the field with people with intellectual disability in therapeutic horticulture I see the massive contributions that they're making in the space they're giving to their communities they're giving to their households they're giving to society more broadly and I would love to create a book that has their image and it has their story in their words written in it that really demonstrates the enormous capacity they um and contribution they make in in Australia for all of Australia not just in in the field of horticulture but through horticulture that's such a great idea I would definitely give that a read so you've got my vote behind that and I think yeah you're right in the sense of like that belittling element and I think you know this is just one area of focus but there would be a lot more in society where that something like that would help kind of break that myth and break the stereotype so I think that's a really great idea and um yeah hopefully let me know what I can do to help on that one (laughs) well we maybe we could turn it into a podcast and you know we could take photos and hear the stories but we could go out in the field and actually capture it. And we'll have a whole podcast, which is different mm-hmm. people around Australia working through horticulture um, to better society. There you wow, go. Wow, there we go. We can make candles, make candles <laughs> at night. Just chuck the candles in there. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for your time. It's definitely very eye-opening and I've learned a lot from you today. So I really appreciate you giving your time up to share your knowledge and your background and your research. It truly is something inspiring inspiring and something so simple has made such an impact and that just blows my mind and I'm definitely going to go throw out my Kmart plant now because I know keep it just get him a little real friend okay I'll get him a real friend and I'll keep you updated thanks Kate thanks so much for having me Mm -hmm.